0: Let's stand, if you would. I'm going to read the text starting in verse 11. Um, If you can't, that's fine. But if you will, stand with me. I'm going to read it and I'll say, this is the word of the Lord and you'll say, thanks be to God. Starting at verse 11, I'm going to read from verse 11 to verse 15. Uh, Verse 11. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism triumphing over them in him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can have a seat. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word. Uh, thank you for the gospel, which these verses are just absolutely rich with. The good news of what Christ has done for us. And so I pray, Lord, that you would help me preach uh, the text faithfully, that you would help me uh, speak clearly and give um, give insights from the Holy Spirit, but also I pray just like everyone here that you would teach me also along with everyone here. uh, And as we see and understand the gospel more that might not know you, Lord, that you would you would save them this morning. You would quicken their hearts and let them see the beauty of what Christ has done for them on the cross and that they would be saved. We love you. We praise in Jesus name. Amen. So as promoted Last week, this text is primarily just the gospel. So if you're wanting to know what's the main point of the text, you know, in preaching, you always want to try to uh, say the main point of the text immediately. And it's pretty obvious. It's the gospel. So the gospel, Colossians chapter 2, starting at verse 11 through 15. It's a straightforward kind of text. As I was prepping, I'll give you a a little insight of what I was thinking to try to to know how I organized it, uh, how Paul organized it and how I tried to discern Paul, through the Holy Spirit, organized it. So generally, uh, texts are generally arranged by either indicatives or imperatives. Um, and so indicatives are like, these are things that the text is indicating about what's true. Imperatives, these are things the text is indic- are telling you about what you should do. It's imperative that you do this. do this. And so I, I, immediately when you're talking about the gospel, they're indicatives. They're not necessarily so much imperatives. And so As I was looking at it, uh, because there's four kind of aorist uh, tenses that that's, that kind of come out like, telling you who you are whenever you're reading it or given things like that and so when it's telling you those things I mean these are things that are happened in the past that are true of you now so those are pretty good things when you hear like they happened in the past as in they happened 2,000 years ago they're still true of you now as in you can't lose it as you haven't lost your salvation these are great news and so I was looking at it but those uh as I was going through the week, I was thinking, okay, I've got four points here. This is what it seems the text is really wanting to drive at as, it, as it's telling us about the gospel. Um, but as I was reading it more and more and more, um, I made a little bit of a switch. A little bit of a switch. Instead of having kind of those four aorist tenses that are phrases about the good news of the gospel where it was really heavily about us, I switched it kind of from a, a man-centered perspective because I think this is what the text is, to a God-centered perspective. And there's three kind of elements here about the gospel. And so I have three glorious works of God. So it's, it's not where it's so much about us, but it's about what God has done uh, in the gospel and how we're basically the, the beneficiaries of these things. Those heiress tensors are still there. I'm still going to go over them. I'm still going to show you those things. But what I see in the text are really ultimately three big picture things about what God has done in the gospel. All right. So uh, we're going to see those. The first one is verse 11 and 12. The second one is verse 13 and 14. And the third one is verse 15. It's pretty, pretty, pretty simple as it's laid out. Um, but let's go ahead and look at the first thing. So it's kind of it's, it's complicated the way the things are written, but it's not too difficult. So if you look at verse 11, it says, um, In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. By putting off the body of flesh, and then it has this little phrase here, by the circumcision of Christ. And so when we look at the circumcision of Christ, this is, uh, this is a, an interesting little phrase. And there are, there are multiple ideas of what this, is, what this means. But if you think about it, just stop for a second and th- think about the circumcision of Christ. Okay, what does that mean? The circumcision of Christ. And the, the kind of two ideas are the circumcision of Christ, as in Christ doing the work of circumcision on you. Uh, and, and we know this means the circumcision of the heart. That's, and that's the way, if you read the NIV, it actually translates, it kind of makes that decision for you whenever you read it. It's like it's talking about something he's done in doing circumcision to us. But it doesn't have to mean that. When it says the circumcision of Christ, it can be the circumcision of Christ as in the circumcision that he received. It was given to him. And so then you've got kind of two options, right? The, the age eight Jesus, I mean, age eight day old Jesus circumcision he received as a Jewish boy or something that's not physical but spiritual and it's talking about. So O'Brien, uh, and I think O'Brien's here when he says this, this I, I take his, his, his thoughts to be what I think the text is. Um, O'Brien says it's not the circumcision of Christ that he's doing to you, but it's the circumcision of Christ that he's received. And it's not talking about what he got when he was an eight-day-old Jewish boy. Instead, it's this. The circumcision of Christ is referring to Jesus' crucifixion when he died on the cross uh, so the circumcision of Christ is what was given to him on the cross. And it's a spiritual sense. It's a, it's a graphic metaphor of what's going on here. And I think that's what's going on in the text. And so when you go back to it and you read verse 11. And so in him you, so now it's talking about things that are happening to us. You were, uh, look at verse 11. In him you were, circumcision, uh, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh, that's something that happened to us by the circumcision of Christ. That's something that happened to him with him through faith and the powerful working of Christ who works raising from the dead. So when you're looking at 11 and 12, something that happened to us, something that happened to us, something Christ did. That's, that happened to Christ, namely his circumcision, his crucifixion, and then th- more things that happened to us. And so when I'm looking at 11 and 12, I'm seeing the big picture thing that's talking about there. And you can go ahead and put up there, the three glorious works of God in the gospel is Christ's circumcision for us. And so when we talk about this, uh, the, the circumcision of Christ that happened to him when he died on the cross for us counted as our circumcision also with Him. Not a physical circumcision, because we know uh, in the Old Testament that was a sign of the people of God, but we still are now circumcised in our heart. It's the circumcision of the heart that has happened to us. Uh, and so Christ's circumcision, uh, namely His death on the cross, is counted as our circumcision. There's, a, there's an association that happens there where he, His circumcision is our circumcision. And we know that it's not physical. We know that it's not a physical circumcision that's talking about like it refers to in the Old Testament, but, but an, uh, a spiritual one. And we, we say this for a couple reasons. Uh, the reason why, if, number one, that the circumcision isn't physical, but it's spiritual, it's pretty obvious right there in the text. In him you were also circumcised. Look at verse 11. In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. So, like, that means obviously not physical, right? That means it's a spiritual, made without hands by putting off the body of flesh. Also, uh, we know it's not uh, a physical one being referred to because in Romans chapter 2, Paul expounds on this particular idea of a Christian circumcision and just explicitly says that it's a circumcision of the heart. So if you look at Romans chapter 2, verse, start at verse 28, for no one... It's a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is a circumcision outward and physical. But uh, a Jew is one inwardly, and a circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. And so, this circumcision that he's talking about that we have also received in Christ is not a physical one, it's a spiritual one. If you're in Christ, you have had your heart circumcised, meaning uh, the old man has died, the new man has come. There's something that's happened to you. Uh, and so this is what he's talking about. And so the circumcision of Christ is also our circumcision. Um, and it's happened to us spiritually. We, as Philippians 3, three says, we are the circumcision uh, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus. And we put no confidence in the flesh. Now, we should notice that uh, in verse 11 and 12, where Paul is talking about this circumcision of Christ for us, he's going to use, uh, he's going to take the ideas of Circumcision in the Old Testament and baptism in the New Testament, and use those two kinds of things that were uh, indicators or signs that people were, people were the people of God and expound on the gospel for us. And so, he's got, as we've looked at 11 and 12, we've seen he mentions circumcision and he also mentions baptism. Look, in him you were all circumcised, circumc- verse 11, in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting up the body of flesh. By the circumcision of Christ, and then verse 12 talks about baptism, having been buried um, with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith and the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. So, um, in the Bible, in the Old Testament, circumcision was a sign that you were part of the people of God. In the New Testament, baptism was a sign that you were part of the people of God. I mean, there's, there's a lot more to it, and there's a lot of, lot of uh, thoughts from commentators, but kind of on its surface, we see that that's true. We know that that's true. Uh, whether you, when, no matter what your theological stripes are, you can agree to that. Uh, and Paul's going to take that truth that Old Testament circumcision is a sign of, of being a person of God. New Testament baptism is a sign that you're part of the people of God. He's going to take those things and expound on glorious truths in the, in, in, in the gospel here in verses 11 and 12. And so, uh, as we know, our heart must be circumcised Uh, In order for us to no longer uh, follow after detestable things, for us to no longer uh, pursue sin anymore, for us to really treasure Christ, our heart must be circumcised. And so as Christ had his circumcision, namely the cross, it's now become ours. And because of that, what follows then in verses 11 and 12 are three glorious effects of Christ's circumcision. So... Uh, You can leave it there. Just stop there for a second. So what follows that we're going to see, we're still under verse 11 and 12. We're still under this big picture, glorious work of God in the gospel, which is Christ's circumcision for us. He's going to list out three things, uh, the three glorious effects to us. This is what's happened to you. These three things are counted to you. And they parallel the three things that Paul talks about in the gospel in 1 Corinthians 15. So if you... If you know anything about the gospel, and usually we'll go there, right? If you look at 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, brothers, I want to remind you of what the gospel is, uh, what I preached to you, which you're now being saved unless you believed in vain. And then in verse 3 says, For I delivered you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins and according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day. So this is kind of like the three-pronged thing in 1 Corinthians 15 regarding the gospel for Christ. That he was dead, that he was buried, and that he was raised. That's the good news of Christ, right? He was dead, he was buried, and he was raised. That's the gospel of Jesus. Well, in Colossians chapter 2, verse 11 and 12, he's going to take those three ideas. Instead of just applying them to Christ like he does in 1 Corinthians 15, he's going to literally apply them to us. dead buried, raised. And he's going to do it by using the illustrations of circumcision and baptism. The dead being in circumcision and the buried and raised being in baptism. It's just absolutely amazing what he's doing here. Uh, It's deepish, you know, but you're all super smart, so I know you can follow. All right, here we go. So three glorious effects of Christ's circumcision. Before we even put them up, you can go ahead and guess them, right? Dead, buried, Raised. It's pretty obvious, right? Yeah. So let's look at him. And he uses, he uses language that, that basically says those things. So if you look in verse 11, he says, in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. And then he says, by, and here it is, putting off the body of flesh. That's an interesting phrase. Putting off the body of flesh. Well, that's the, that's the component of dead. So the first glorious effect of circumcision is our body of flesh was put off. In other words, dead. We are dead. This is a profane way of saying that we have by the Spirit put off the old man in its corrupt nature. The old man is dead. We've put him off. Uh, the profane way is, uh, is this. I, I have four sons. I think you all know this, right? Um, and one thing that's never happened to me ever, whenever we've been in the room during the circumcision, whenever they're babies, is the doctor has never asked me, this is profane, so sorry, but the doctor has never looked at me and said, hey, would you like to keep the leftover foreskin? Uh, He's never looked at me and said that, right? Because that is counted as gross and disgusting for the garbage, don't want any part of it. The point that Paul's trying to make is this is the mindset that we're to have of the old man. Who is us? There's the dead foreskin, you want to keep that? No, you're in Christ now, you were the old man, just like the dead foreskin's thrown away, the old man is to be considered thrown away. Now, you who are in Christ, when you look at that, you say, do I want to be the old man again? No, absolutely not. Not ever. And so the glorious effect of Christ's circumcision is we are truly dead. Just as the flesh is cut off in circumcision and left behind. When we are circumcised in heart by the Spirit, the old man has been left behind and is thrown away. The old man's dead. And the implications are just absolutely massive. We should no longer count ourselves as sinners. The old man Has been thrown away and is dead. That's the good news of the gospel. Not just dead, buried, and resurrected for Christ, but for us. That man is dead. We've been circumcised of the heart now. That's the first one, is our body of flesh was put off. That's literally what he's talking about in circumcision. The body of flesh has been cast off. And so now you count yourself, that old man, gone. And he shifts now into the idea of baptism uh, for these next two. And this is what he says. If you look at verse 12, having been buried with him in immersion, baptism. Baptizo just means immersion, right? So we've been buried with him in our immersion. And so number two, you can go ahead and put it up. We were buried in baptism. Dead, buried, same thing with Christ, Uh, And this is the idea that in our baptism, when we actually go down in the water, we share in Christ's burial with him. Um, You can can associate one of the more obvious texts that's pretty commonly quoted, uh, Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, his death counts literally as our death. Uh, As it says in Galatians chapter 2, verse twenty. For I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I literally have been crucified with him. O'Brien says, as the burial of Christ is the seal upon his death, so the Colossians' burial with Christ in baptism shows that they were truly involved in the death of Jesus and laid in his grave. That means us too. When Jesus was buried, When Jesus died, we died. When Jesus was buried, we are to count or reckon ourselves as literally having been buried with him in the tomb. The old man, when we say is gone in his death, the old man is truly gone when it comes to the burial. Real death has occurred. The old life is now a thing of the past. We're no longer slaves to sin anymore. Praise the Lord. It's been buried. That sin that you did, that you don't believe is gone, It really is. Praise Jesus for that. The sin that you think that you cannot overcome, you can because it's been buried. He absolutely forgives. He wipes away all of our sins. And so uh, not only have we been dead, counted dead, and buried... The last one, of course, is raised. And so he's so far discussed the signs, baptism and circumcision, kind of in negative terms, dead and buried. Those are negative terms. Now he's going to swing into what would be a turn to the positive side when we're talking about baptism because you're dead, but you're also raised. And so he's turning into what would be a positive side here. Number three, we were raised through faith in him. Having been buried with him in baptism, verse 12, you were also raised with him, through faith and the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead, and the powerful working of God. So, number three, we were raised with him through faith. We were raised with him through faith. Now, this is uh, the powerful working of God that uh, happened as Christ was killed for us on the cross, uh, as that has raised us. Now, it's done through faith, but. Uh, where did your faith come from? It's a gift from the Lord. And so uh, the point is that literally everything in the gospel is because of Christ's um, glory and Christ's initiation, right? So everything he does is for his glory. And all of that's happened for us in in our salvation has been God wrought. He has done it for us. Therefore, he gets all the glory, not us. Now, when we're looking at this idea of being raised Uh, through faith, there's a couple important features I want you to see regarding this resurrection of Jesus, which is also therefore our resurrection. Um, If you read verse 12, uh, you were also raised, look at that little phrase after that, you were also raised with him, with him. We have been raised with Christ. So as Christ was raised, and if there is no resurrection of Christ, then there is no resurrection of us. We're truly dead forever. But since he has been raised, and which is why we celebrate Easter every Sunday, right? That's the whole point. The resurrection is, the, it's not just the death of Jesus, it's the resurrection of Jesus that's the good news. Uh, and so we have been raised with him, with Christ. So when we see this with Christ, again, it's highlighting for us that all of our salvation is because of him. But here's where we're getting into what I was talking about, the the aorist, uh phrases that, Eris is just a, uh, a verb tense and that talks about something that's happened in the past that's true today. And so when it says this, you were also raised with him. The second little feature I want to talk about this is that we have already been raised. In the verb tense, the truth is that we have already been raised. And you're like, what? I have? <laughs> well, yes, because I said, since it's in the Arab tense, it's describing, some, describing something that's already taken place uh, in the past, but true presently. Even though you haven't actually been raised into heaven or your body hasn't been raised, the the what's true of you is that you have been raised. Not in a sense in the that we've already reached the eschaton or the eschatology's already happened. Like you don't live in the new heavens and the new earth yet, neither do I. Uh, but what's what's true of us, what's already been declared of us uh, is That we have been raised. The Colossian church, Remedy church, they don't live in the eschaton yet. Um, But what is true is that we have already been raised. So think of that implication then. Um, At faith, the Lord counts you as completely resurrected and in Christ, raised um, with him. I mean, that's, that's an amazing thing. That's an amazing truth that's already been declared of us. So here's what all this means. When we're looking at point one about Christ's circumcision and these glorious effects, here's what what all this means. O'Brien says it this way. The apostle asserts that with the believer now, that's, that's everyone in the room if you're in Christ, you're no longer a slave to sin. You're no longer a slave to sin because you have been crucified with Christ. So if you believe the lie from the enemy, that certain sins still rule and reign over your mind and heart and life, that's wrong. And that's not true. And the gospel is bearing witness to that. You are not a slave to that. Don't believe that. It is not true. You're no, no longer a slave to sin because Christ, we have been actually crucified with Christ and raised. He has, been free, uh, he has been freed from the dominion of this slave driver of sin. That's us. We Christians, now, we participate in the new life now and we can walk in this newness of life. The emphasis of the passage falls upon the believer counting himself dead to sin, not letting sin reign in his mortal body, presenting himself to God and surrendering his members or his body as instruments of righteousness. And all of this is declared as true over us right now. That's pretty good news. This coming Tuesday, When you're feeling like garbage again, just like me, this is what's true. These are the kinds of things we have to... That's why we preach the gospel to ourselves every day. We have to remind ourselves of these kinds of things continually um, because uh, we will absolutely become completely defeated. But Christ's circumcision, his cross, and the gospel makes all of these truths available to us right now. These things are true of you right now. That's the first thing. Christ's circumcision for us Now keep reading, and then I'll show you what I, wanna, I want you to see here. In verse 13, And you who are dead, so we're back to talking about us, but we're going to see your flesh. And here it is. God, you who are dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. And here it is. God made alive together with him, having forgiven all of our trespasses, back to what we've done or what we've received. We've received forgiveness of trespasses by. This is really good news here. Canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So, as we read 13 and 14, there's something that stands out as not just stuff that's happened to us, but this one kind of thing that rises up in 13 and 14 is God has done something. All right, so I'm going to use a big word, but it's just because it's the best word I could think of to really talk about what happens here. So, uh, go ahead and put up number two God's vivification of us. That's just a fancy word that means to make something alive, all right? I just just didn't want to write God doing something to make us alive. Just put it all in one word. So when you actually give something life, you vivify it. And so God has vivified us. We were dead men and women in our sin, and then he made us alive. And this making us alive is called vivification. So God's vivification of us making something come alive or giving something life. This is what God has specifically and mercifully done for us in the gospel through his son. And so as we look at verses 13 and 14 and we talk about him giving us life, he, uh, he's going to do it in kind of two phases in, in verses 13 and 14. In one phase, he's going to talk about our state before Christ. And then the second phase, he's going to talk about our state now or after Christ. And so... We, we need to do this. And again, uh, it's not fun to go over the bad news. It's always kind of like, uh, but as you go through it and then you realize where you are, the bad news turns into like, wow, I'm not that anymore. And it can, it can be quite encouraging and refreshing. But that's what Paul does here. He tells us the bad news of who we were before reminding us of the, of the good news of who we are right now. O'Brien says the wonder of salvation that has been experienced is contrasted with the lost situation from which God has freed them. So notice how he does this in the text with me. Verse 12. Having been buried with him in baptism. uh, I'm sorry, 13. And you who were, here it is, dead in your trespasses. And uh, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, that was the bad news. God has made you alive, having forgiven all of your trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. He set aside and then linked to the cross. So you can see the state before and then the state afterwards. And the pastors are called in the first part of verse 13, uh, not for too much emphasis to make us just absolutely despair, but instead to draw our attention to the wonder of being saved by Jesus. And so let's look at the state before, and then we'll see the state after. I think I have a state before. Verse 13. We were dead in our trespasses. We were in the uncircumcision of our flesh. Verse 13. And you were dead in your trespasses. Before Christ, all of us were dead and under the dominion of death. Spiritual death reigned in us. It reigned in us. Not R-A-I, right? R-E-I-G-N. ED. It reigned in us. Terrible alienation was our lot. We were separated from God. This was our lot in life pre Christ. Alienation and separation from God, specifically because of willful sin. We were willfully sinning and we were totally without spiritual life. We were dead in our trespasses. Not only that, we were in the uncircumcision of our flesh, meaning it was marking in us deliberate acts of sin and disobedience. All intentional, consciously sinning against our Creator, intentional rebellion against God. The acts for which Christ was actually given up to death so we could actually receive forgiveness of all those things. We were. In the uncircumcision of our flesh. The old man that I spoke of before was ruling and reigning and having his way. Doing everything he wanted. And then that flesh was circumcised off and the old man is cast away as dead in Christ. That was our state before. And death was assigned to us and wicked and willful and sin ruled and reigned in us. That was the state before. You know, as Ephesians 2, 4 says, but God, Right? And then we have this glorious thing of, but here's what's going on now. And he 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 even does that for us. You were dead in your trespasses, uncircumcision, and then he just goes. He leaves off the little, you know, the little butt, and says, "God made you alive." It's the same idea as he says in, two, in Ephesians two four. Uh, and I'm sure you know this, but Ephesians and Colossians are almost kind of like mirror books. They 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 have very very similar ideas spread throughout. But Ephesians two four says it this way. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, uh, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, Ephesians 2, 4 and 5. And so our state now is of our trespasses. And so um, he has this, these next little phrases where uh, they kind of, Connect to each other. If you, if, you, if you sentence diagram, y'all remember back in grammar when you do sentence diagrams? You, the sentence diagrams are going to all connect to each other. So if you look at this, um, you, you'll be able to see it. So, um, verse, let's go back to 13. God made us alive together with him, having forgiveness of us of all of our trespasses. So the point is, uh, we have been made alive because our sins. And trespasses have been forgiven. So God made us alive with him having forgiven our trespasses. So the reason why we're alive is because God forgave our trespasses. And then the same idea next after that. And the reason why our trespasses are forgiven is because by canceling the record of debt that stood against us. So uh, we've been forgiven our trespasses because the record of debt against us was nailed to the cross. And so... Because that third thing happened, namely the canceling of the record of the debt, happened, now we've been forgiven. And now that we've been forgiven, back to the first one, now we've been made alive. And they have to have happened in that order, backwards, I guess you could say. Um, and when we see this, so keep going, by canceling the record of debt, the record of debt, what is, what is it? The record of debt. Um, I mean, obviously, it means the continual uh, accumulation of sin debt that you and I had against God, against a holy God? Well, you could ask the specific question. This is a little bit kind of in the weeds, but this is still pretty, I think, uh, important. Specifically, you are talking about the Colossian heresy, etc. So uh, how did they know they had a debt, and what was the debt? If some are Jews and some are Gentiles, what's this debt? Uh, and so for the Jew, uh, and Paul thoroughly answers these things. And I'm just going to kind of go over it in a a quick kind of cursory way. For the Jew, the debt that was accumulating was namely breaking the law of God that they knew from the Old Testament. They were breaking the commandments. But what about the Gentile? They didn't know this. Well, Paul covers this also in Romans chapter 2, I think it's verse 29, uh, that the law is written on their hearts. Though they had never seen the Old Testament law and had no concept of what it was, the law was written on their hearts. And they were breaking that. And so both Jew and Gentile were accumulating debt, sin debt against the Lord. Um, Whether it was written down for them like the Jews or written on their hearts like the Gentiles. That's us. We were continually uh, breaking the law of God and we're having this crushing debt against us. You think that your debt's crushing. (laughs) It is maybe, right? Now I'm not trying to minimize it. But it's nothing compared to sin debt, right? Sin debt. Uh, A lot of my commentators, interesting, called it IOUs, which I thought it was hilarious uh, to use the phrase IOU. It's kind of like, God, I owe you uh, a perfect life, but I haven't given it to you. And so now I'm taking the debt on. That, you know, it was an interesting way that they kept saying it, but um, we are accumulating this crushing, crushing debt. And what we need is forgiveness of trespasses. And at the cross... Jesus was nailed to the cross. So when he says the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He's using kind of this little funny language to say the debt was nailed to the cross. In other words, Jesus took the place of it for us. So when Jesus was nailed to the cross, the debt was nailed to the cross, and it no longer is against us. And because of that, now our trespasses are forgiven. And so now that our trespasses are forgiven, back up to the first part of the sentence. You've been made alive. You've been made alive. Which is back to God's vivification of us. You can go to the state after. I've already talked about that. The state after is we've been a made, we have been made alive with Christ. And so uh, a few commentators uh, looking at this, they have some amazing things that they say. God not only removed the debt, he has destroyed the document on which it was recorded. Truly gone. It was an accumulated, written on this thing. The thing's been taken away and thrown. The document of our and my, our accumulated specific debt that we are gone. Nailed it to the cross. Jesus being nailed to the cross, metaphorically nailed that that document to the cross and now it's gone. What does that mean then practically? It means you don't need to feel bad about it anymore. Walking around with guilt and shame about forgiven sin Don't need to. That's the whole point of the gospel. Not just forgiveness, but no longer guilty, no longer need to feel shame about it. Christ took it for you. F.F. Bruce, Christ took that signed acknowledgement of indebtedness, which stood as a perpetual witness against them and canceled it by his debt. There was a perpetual witness against us, namely that big, huge document. Christ took it, nailed it to the cross, and canceled it. Garland, God nailed the incriminating list of unpaid debts to the cross. That's Jesus. He became sin, as it says in 2 Corinthians 5. He became the incriminating list against us. So here's the application. Here's what it means. O'Brien says the metaphorical language shouldn't be pressed too much, but but he says this: God had canceled the bond. God has canceled the bond. That was against us. There's a bond against us that's been canceled. Nailing it to the cross. And this is a vivid way of saying that because Jesus was nailed to the cross, our debt has been completely forgiven. Just think about, like, if you're you're massively in debt right now and somebody just said, gone, you'd just be like, wow. Is it even real? Like, I don't even know what to do right now. I'm going to go buy something. You shouldn't, right? But he has been, like, gone the weight of that that was on your shoulders that's been lifted off should just be the most refreshing. Like, oh my, unbelievable, Lord. Because that sin debt is far more crushing than any financial debt that we can have. And so what it means is the canceled bond, the bond that was against us is canceled. A vivid way of saying that Christ was nailed to the cross and our debt has been completely forgiven. Who was nailed to the cross? Not me, praise the Lord, because I should have been. Not you, praise the Lord, because you should have been. Who was nailed to the cross? Jesus was nailed to the cross. Meaning, being nailed to the cross means that the debt we owe is gone. Not a trace of your debt remains. Which means, not a trace of your guilt or your shame should remain anymore. This gospel is amazing. Christ's message of forgiveness is amazing, which means he has truly cast our sin as far as from the east to the west. Psalm 103, 12. So the second glorious work of God in the gospel is God's vivification. You are truly alive in every sense with no guilt, and no shame. That first one, if you remember, the first one is Christ's circumcision for us. The second one is God's vivification of us. And the third one is God's triumph overall. It's still all about Him. Number three, God's triumph overall. Verse 15. You can see it. He disarmed the rulers and authorities. A lot of debate on rulers and authorities. lot of debate. Um, just to give you an idea. Uh, Some say fallen angels. I think it was Calvin, MacArthur. Uh, Some say just principles and powers, O'Brien, Garland. Some say forces, principalities. Um, There's a lot of things that it can be, right? Um, But we can still say whatever it is, he still is triumphing over all of them. He's bigger than all of them. It's still all about him. So uh, God's triumph over all things, verse 15, he disarmed all the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. There it is. Not only did he disarm them, but he triumphed over all of them. The point of this verse then uh, is not necessarily to figure out exactly who, because I think it's just all of them. I think, yeah, you're all right, commentators. Well, you know, who am I? But that's what I think it is. Um, but the point of the verse is not necessarily to figure out exactly what it was, because it's all of them anyway. Ultimately, the point of the verse is to highlight that Christ is the only one that takes the guilt and sin away from his people. And so he is the one who's triumphed and he's the one that's glorious. That's the point. And sin has not just um, any guilt on us anymore, but it has no hold on you anymore. The guilt's wiped away, but the hold that it had. Like, I've got a sin. No, it doesn't. Because Christ triumphed over it. He's over it now. He's over you. He triumphed. He, he's in charge. And so that hold that you think it has doesn't have it. God's triumph. God's triumph that's being pictured here is one of celebrating military victory in the streets. Uh, you won the huge war. I mean, I, I wasn't present, but you, we've read stuff. Like the streets uh, after World War II was just victory and triumph everywhere, right? All over the streets of Europe. People are celebrating in parade-like fashion. We have won. Nazism has been destroyed. In a much grander scale, this is what's happening here. God's triumph are being pictured as celebrating a military victory in the streets. And so when you read um, triumphing over them, put them in verse 15, he put them to open shame by triumphing over them, you should read it more accurately as celebrating triumph over them. So the the participle isn't triumphing. The participle's celebrating. So we have literally, we're celebrating the triumph. Triumphing just sounds like we've won. Celebrating is like we have won and we're partying about it. Like it's a big deal. So celebrating triumph over them. This is what's going on. It's like leading a a victory parade. Um, One writer says it this way. God parades these Powers and principalities or forces or fallen angels or whatever you want to say. God parades these, uh, these rulers and authorities. Victory that he has. Their period of rule is finished. They must now worship and serve the victor. These authorities are not depicted as gladly submitting, uh, surrendering, but as submitting against their wills to a power that they absolutely cannot resist which means there was, there's no yin and yang here, like good versus evil, equal power stuff. It's here they are, and here's God. At any moment, they're done, and that's what happened. He's infinitely more powerful than they are. And so God's triumph does two things. You can see him right in the text there. He disarmed rulers and authorities, and he put them to open shame. We'll talk about each one of those. He disarmed rulers and authorities, as I've said, uh, devil, demons. Fallen angels, forces, powers, rulers, authorities. Lots of debate on what all this means. If it's like inanimate things or actual things. Uh, But the point is that whatever power they had, when it says he disarmed them, it's literally like stripped them. He has stripped them from any kind of grip, whatever they are, whatever grip they had on you, that, that power's been stripped away. So it's not just that the guilt and the shame are gone, but the hold that you think they had also. He held their hand until they had to let go. They tapped out and they're done. It's over for them. That's the point that's trying to make here. What, whatever it is you think in your former life that was pushing you to sin, whether it be yourself, but also any other kind of thing, no grip on you whatsoever because Christ triumphed over them. And this is, this is interesting where it says, he put them to open shame, open shame, Uh, Dagmatizo, the verb, deigmatizo, open shame, only used one other time in the Bible. Only used one other time in the Bible. And it's in Matthew chapter one. Joseph did not want to put Mary to open shame. And he wanted to divorce her quietly because he found her to be with child. He didn't understand what's going on. (laughs) This is emphatically the opposite of that, Right? God wants to put them to open shame and publicly parade them out as the absolute losers here. That's what he's saying here. He put them to open shame. It's literally uh, as public as it can be. This is exactly what Jesus is doing with these rulers and authorities. He's exposing their true character to everyone and making them an open example that everyone should openly ridicule. They are absolutely worthless things and should have no hold, no sway over his people ever. Putting them to open shame. Why is it that he's wanting to put to open shame these things, these rulers and authorities, whether they're inanimate or animate? What's the point of that, right? What's the the grand point of that? Well, I don't think it's necessarily that we just should sit around and openly ridicule fallen angels, right? I don't think that's the point, right? It's the contrast Right? The point is, it's mainly highlighting the overwhelming nature that Christ Jesus is glorious. He's infinitely worthy of all of our worship forever. And those things never were. But only he is. He's triumphed over all. And so in your heart of hearts, there should be a welling up of worship that's unceasing and never ending, pointed toward Jesus for what he's done for us in the gospel Because he died for us on the cross in his circumcision. He made us alive and vivified us now. And he rules and reigns and triumphs over all things. These are the three three great glorious notes for us here. All of this is because of the cross of Christ. John Piper says this. What is the cross to you? What is the cross to you? The cross is the blazing fire at which the flame of our love is kindled but we have to get near enough to it for its sparks to fall on us. The cross is the blazing fire for which our love for him is kindled, but you have to get close enough to it for the sparks to fall on you. You're not set on fire because of what Christ has done for you. Get a little closer to the blazing fire cross and get on fire It's the point. So, What's the cross for you today? It's, it's at least these three things. It's at least these three. A place for you to come to and stop. If you're in, in Christ, stop that current sin because it has no hold on you, it has no guilt over you, and you have no reason to be doing it. Number two, it's a place for you to get close to, to find your heart to just be melted and fall in love with Christ again. And lastly, it's, at least it's a place for you to renew your faith in Christ and a love for his, his gospel. It's at least those three things. You can come up with 40 more. But the the invitation is the same for all of us. Draw closer to the cross. Draw closer to this message of good news that Christ has done for us. That he took the cross for us. He's made us alive and he rules and reigns over all things. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word, this gospel this glorious good news that Christ took the penalty for us on the cross. And I pray, Lord, uh, that these truths would permeate our hearts and that we would be absolutely amazed in what you've done for us. I pray for all my friends here, if they've had a tough week or a great week, either way, that they wouldn't uh, despair because of the tough week and they wouldn't think too highly of themselves because of the great week. But instead all of our minds would be pushed to Christ and that we would come to the cross not boasting of our great efforts and not despairing of our uh, inability to follow you as we ought but instead cast all of our uh, mind and thoughts towards you at the cross thank you for this message of the gospel you're so good Lord Thank you that you took the cross, that you made us alive, and that you rule and reign over all things. You have triumphed completely. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.